non-apologizers. Not sure I want to give a name to my listeners just yet, but anyways, I'm your host, Nikki, and this is Still Won't Apologize, a place where we can have unfiltered conversations about everyday life. I want to take the time and say thank you for downloading this episode and continuing to listen. Join me every other week as I sit down with guests or myself, uh, discuss different paths that life has taken, maybe share some expertise information, or maybe just have conversations about random stuff. Who really knows? Anyways, I promise you that you will either laugh, cry, or quite possibly give you something to carry with you as you navigate life. As always, here's a reminder that you do not need to apologize for being yourself, and I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, it's Nikki. Welcome to Still Won't Apologize. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Holly Richman, um, who is a uh, sex therapist um, and so much more, but I'm going to turn it over to you so you can um, introduce yourself. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. This is, uh, I've been looking forward to this. So thank you for having me. Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. What else? What else do I do? So I think it's probably important for your readers to know. So I'm a somatic psychotherapist. So, so much of what we're going to be talking about today is based on the body. So for anyone that doesn't know, soma translates to body. So I do talk therapy, but there's always a body-based component to it. Um, and then the sex therapy and then and um, licensed marriage and family therapist. So I kind of, um, I'm trained as a trauma therapist, but I figured out you can't study trauma if you're not studying the body and you can't study the body if you're not studying sex. So that's just kind of the trajectory of how things go for me. So everything that we talk about is gonna be in one of those buckets. Great, great. Uh, Let's start with the trauma aspect of this in the body. Um, I've interviewed quite a few people that have um, experience with either trauma or have been a part of um, a way to ex- express trauma. I've, I've worked or spoken with yoga teachers and um, different trades. How would you address trauma in the body from a somatic perspective? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, how do I do that? All right. So I, I think I want to tell a little bit of the backstory just to sure. get everybody caught up. So I did my um, 3000 hours of internship at a rape crisis center. And during those years, I was taught very well how to treat trauma, uh, but I wasn't taught how to treat what comes next. So for me, I was like, these people need to have good sex and they need to have healthy relationships. So I wrote my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual trauma and I discovered three parameters and their control, pleasure, and connection. So really my life's work and the book Reclaiming Pleasure and the course Reclaiming Pleasure is really the um, experiential pieces of how do we work through elements of control? How do we work through elements of pleasure and connection? Um, So some of that's movement-based, some of it's nervous system regulation, and some of it happens out there in the wild in connection with other people. Gotcha. So your 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 experience with with working with trauma, I'm going to say survivors. I would guess yeah. would be the best way to put this. If you notice, when it comes to sexual health and and their relationships, a lot of it, especially when you're coming from sexual trauma, 
it's kind of a long road for these patients, right? Because there's a lot of things with it when just touch in general can be so sensitive for people. What are some of the steps that you take when you're working with your clients just from a beginning perspective to, you know, guiding them towards to the end, I guess, if there ever is. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if there's an end, but there's definitely a much better than, than usually where I meet them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing I do is just grounding them in their survivorship. So, so often we want to minimize the trauma because most survivors come in and they're like, yeah, but I didn't have a bruise. I don't have any scars. It wasn't traumatic. So sexual trauma doesn't have to be violent. It just has to be violating. So Ooh. really helping them right? Not violent, just violating. And if it felt traumatic, it was traumatic. Mm -hmm. So we don't get to measure suffering. Everybody experiences things to a different degree. So helping them know, did you experience sexual abuse? Was it sexual assault? Was it rape? Was it gender violence, sexual harassment, online harassment? Really, what is the story of what happened to you? Because most survivors go right to well, what did I do? What is my piece in this? Why didn't I say no? Why didn't I run? Why did I go on a second date? All of these ways that we keep ourselves on the hook that are kind of founded in sexual shame. My job, my primary job is to help survivors unhook themselves and really to put the blame where it belongs, which is on the perpetrator. Got it. I, it's that question of why did I go on a second date or why didn't I say no? I think too, more often than not, as, as most humans, I feel like are in this people pleasing stage, we don't necessarily know how to say no, just a simple word of no, or setting a boundary in which, you know, we should have done something different. There's always that looking, I like to call them shower thoughts where you have that should have, could have, would have thoughts. I should have done yeah. this, would have done this. Um, and it, it carries on through it obviously different types of um, relationships or, or situations that you're faced with. When you're working with these clients, and they have those, those types of thoughts, do you work uh, with, you know, exercises and setting boundaries and and understanding that they were, I know you just mentioned switching it to um, the abuser, but like, what are the steps that people can kind of tell when they're in that cycle of just people pleasing and, you know, not setting their boundaries? Do you work with them in, in that, in, in that, reference, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you just touched on. So most people know the three F's of trauma, but there's actually four. Mm -hmm. So they're fight, flight, freeze and fawn, right? Most people know the first three, the fawn is what you're talking about. It's the chronic people pleasing, it's going along to get get along. It's playing nice, it's doing whatever I have to do to get myself out of that conflictual situation. Mm -hmm. so much of sexual trauma is a fawn response. So it's either going to be freeze or fawn. Mm -hmm. Most, most survivors are not going to fight because it would be pointless because their abuser is usually bigger than they are. It's not going to be flee because there's nowhere to run. Right. Mm -hmm. And over 85% of sexual trauma is perpetrated by someone known to the person, the sexual trauma that the media paints, someone jumps out of the bushes that so rarely happens. Mm -hmm. So we think we're with a safe person and then they cross a boundary in a huge way. So we're not going to fight. We're not going to run. We're going to freeze, meaning we're going to dissociate, leave our body, just kind of go cold and wait for it to be over. Or we're going to play nice and we're going to be like, oh, oh yeah, it was good seeing you too. And just kind of get ourselves out of the situation. I've had survivors even text their perpetrator back So the perpetrator will be like, oh, I had a great time seeing you. And they'll text back, yeah, me too, um, because they're so in that fawn. Mm -hmm. 
but you wouldn't believe how that hook stays in. So they're like, oh, nothing bad must have happened to me because I literally texted back or mm-hmm. I didn't scream or whatever the story is. And that has nothing to do with it. They were in fawn response. Interesting. I never knew. I, I This is the first time I'm hearing fawn response. It's That's very interesting. One of, so there, there are different aspects I want to, I, I kind of want to talk about with regards to, you know, s- sexual abuse, right? A lot yeah. of the times too, there are responses that are sometimes not necessarily known, as you mentioned earlier, that somebody might not know is actually a violation to themselves. Um, and they find themselves in this situation. There's always questions afterwards where, you know, did I enjoy it? Did I not enjoy it? How do you kind of help them understand that they were actually violated and they, you know, this wasn't that, that what happened wasn't okay. Do you come across having to explain that or dive deep into that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the first one is, again, if it felt traumatic, it was. Mm -hmm. So it might not feel so in the moment. It might feel traumatic a week after, a month after, a year year after, 30 years after. Mm -hmm. I've literally sat with people who carried their trauma for 50 years. And then we're like, Oh my gosh, I have all of these symptoms. Um, So in reclaiming pleasure, chapter six is uncovering hidden wounds. And in that I just list symptom after symptom. So emotional, physical, relational, and sexual survivors open up those pages and they're just like, Oh my gosh, I can see myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Sexual trauma has a long lasting cascading effect for some of us. Like those symptoms are just hidden. We don't want to recognize them because again, we, we leave the situation and go, I didn't have any bruises or scars. It must not have been that bad. And mm-hmm. our body is screaming. It was bad. It was bad. Please pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's, I, I had a similar conversation with somebody else on the show about how, you know, listening to your body is so important because it is trying to tell you something when it comes to, you know, sexual health and reclaiming after a traumatic situation, how does, how does one go about, or how do you assist one to go about finding that connection and being able to be, feel comfortable again with themselves? Obviously it takes time, um, but is there little exercises they can do? Is there understanding, you know, what the healthy side of this might look like? Um, have you worked, this is kind of a two-part question. Have you worked with clients who have suffered a traumatic experience, don't necessarily consider it traumatic, but find themselves in the same sexual cycle, uh, with regards to what happened to them? Absolutely. Yes. So that's a huge yes to that question. And they come to me because there's something in them that lets them know, oh my gosh, this pattern is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Right. So what was adaptive for me back then isn't adaptive for me anymore. It's maladaptive. I'm not feeling good. I'm not picking the right partners. I'm drinking too much. I have an eating disorder. I have chronic pain. Um, and please know, I'm not saying chronic pain is all somatic. Um, mm-hmm. It's not at all. Right. The pain is real, but what's the root of it? So just kind of sussing that out. So the way we do that. So once we understand the sexual trauma, then I'm going to look at sexual health and help that person understand what sexual health means to them. From there, I'm gonna put them on a self-pleasure protocol. So Mm -hmm. masturbation, touching yourself, whatever you wanna call it, I call it a self-pleasure protocol. So twice a week, I'm gonna ask them to get in bed with themselves, in the bath, in the shower, wherever they have privacy, and just start touching themselves in a way that feels sensual or erotic, but it doesn't have to be sexual. 
-hmm. and we're going to go as slow as that person needs. And we're going to work up to what they consider a peak sexual experience for themselves. So they, do they want to give themselves an orgasm? Do they want to penetrate themselves or do they not care about that? I have no agenda. I just kind of meet my client where they are and we work up to, to whatever they want to express. The next piece is in partner relationships. If they're a person that's in relationship, then I would put the couple on a protocol as well. Um, start from the very bottom and build up, build up, build up. Yeah, it, it's really unfortunate. And it actually makes my heart break to think about somebody who, you know, just the idea of touch can be so, you know, traumatic or something they don't yeah. want. I mean, I think I touch my husband randomly throughout the day so many times. I can't, yeah. imagine, vice versa. I can't imagine, you know, not wanting to feel that. I think my love, I'm pretty sure my love language is touch. So that makes sense for me. But um, yeah, it's a lot. It, it is. And it doesn't even have to be touch. It can be a word. It can be a smell. It could mm -hmm. be like, I don't know, something horrible. Someone calling you cupcake or baby, like that can be a trigger a smell of cut grass, a smell of like a musty basement, mm -hmm. um, a visual cue, a type of sundress. Like there's so many things that survivors have to take into account that can be triggers. Right. The subconscious kind of just comes back yeah. whenever it wants to. Um, yeah. That's it's, it breaks my heart because I, for me, and when I think about like sexual pleasure and, and, and relationships, I think it's a very healthy and important part of a, the human experience and to know that there are people out there that that can experience in a positive matter really just gets me <laughs> it's just not it's not something I would wish on anybody um what other uh part of the part of your book uh would you say could be you mentioned chapter six with you know um, figuring out symptoms what other parts of um, the book would you say can help guide somebody if they are not in a place where they're ready to sit down and talk with somebody like you, but maybe just wanting to read, like, obviously start to finish. But if there's anything that you can kind of like call out that like, hey, you want to start getting comfortable, look at this. Is there anything you want yeah. to call out on a quick snippet? Sure. Um, there's so many great online resources. So it depends on where the person is. If they want trauma information or a support group, they're going to go to RAIN. So it's R-A-I-N-N. -N. That's a nationwide resource. Hopefully you can put that up in the show notes for people. Mm -hmm. I will. Um, their local crisis center usually is going to have a support group kind of situation. Group therapy for sexual trauma is incredibly impactful. Um, but then there's websites like OMG Yes, which are all pleasure-based. They're sex education, pleasure-focused, that really talk people through different types of sexual pleasure. So yeah, there's there's a lot of resources out there. Different kinds of toys, just educating yourself about your own sexual health, I think is key. Right. And this is a like a perfect segue because I think it's still, for some people, it's still a taboo subject to talk about what your idea of personal pleasure would be, what your idea of pleasure with a partner. Um, my, I myself, I'm obsessed with the topic. So I, I'm constantly yeah. researching or learning or want to understand. From a very young age, I always wanted to understand like what my body is capable of, especially women's bodies, because it's just, there's so much. So from, let's kind of shift focus here. So when you're working with clients that might not necessarily be in the trauma-based side of it, and you're working with women from a, from a sexual health standpoint. Yep. 
how often do you come across a woman that doesn't necessarily understand her body? I feel like that's such a tricky question, but uh, I feel like the education for, for personal sexual health, let's start there, for women is not something that we're actually taught, right? It's more of a self-taught understanding of it, or, you know, you watch porn at a young age and you think it's supposed right. to work one way. How do you kind of like guide or shift or what are some like pointers to get people to at least understand what their body can do? Yeah. Yeah. So I would start with finding out where they heard about sex, right? So was it nothing in their household or were their parents like too, too intrusive? Um, what did they learn from their friends? When did they see porn? Um, what were their cultural or religious messages about it? Any kind of slut shaming, things like that. From there, once we kind of work through that, I would help them discover their sexual template. So I do this in two phases. The first is desire. The second is arousal. So desire is the psychological process of wanting. So what turns you on? And this doesn't have to be sexual. Just like what pulls you in? Is it a warm cup of tea? Is it a dirty martini? Is it leather? Is it the beach? Like using the five senses, what turns you on? I mean, what do you find sexy? Arousal is the physiological process of wanting. So that's very body-based. That'll be like, you'll notice yourself getting excited, getting lubricated, getting an erection, or just like knowing you want more. Again, we're going to go to the five senses. What turns you on? Is it watching porn? Is it seeing someone sing? Is it like, are you voyeur? Are you an exhibitionist? Are you kinky? Are you sensual? So really getting in kind of the nitty gritty of that. I love the example of the five senses because I think so often people don't understand that there's there are things that not necessarily turn us on, but that start the process of turning us on. Like I, I have a joke with my friends of like, what are the non-sexual things that are actually, yeah, exactly. and I made a joke one day. It was like, when the arm goes behind the headrest, when somebody's backing up, like that to me is extremely sexy. Oh. Don't know why, but it's, it's sexy. And I think so more often than not, when, when women don't understand that these things that can happen, it's, it's misconstrued as something else. So I love that we're going through the senses. Um, obviously scent is a big one, but like non-sexual things, I think is a, is a huge thing that's often ignored. Um, cause we immediately go to body parts and, and thrusting and things, you know, things in the bedroom, right. People don't necessarily pay attention to those other things. So I love that you brought that up. Yeah. And I love your example. That's a great one. That's a great one. Okay. And what you and I are talking about is really eroticism mm -hmm. or Eros, E-R-O-S. So when we think of things that are erotic, we, we usually think sexual, but the definition of Eros is life force, vitality, vivacity, creativity, imagination. That's what you just touched on. The hand behind the headdress that does something for you, mm -hmm. right? There's a little hook there for you. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> And before I'm going to any kind of sexual space, um, you know, uh, sexual um, intentionality with a client, we're going to look at the big picture of life. Like what gets you going? Is it dancing? Is it singing? Is it running? Is it art? Like where is, where is the pull for you? Mm -hmm. No, I love that. That's great. Yeah. I think, and I know I've kind of mentioned this, but like we as, as young women, um, Obviously, we don't necessarily, we have conversations of sex, but in a reproduction type way. And depending yeah. on how you've grown up, you might have had parents that talked about it with you freely, or you might have parents that talked to you more of an education wise. I've always been curious as to how, I mean, obviously, we can't change the narrative 
tomorrow, but like how, how do we get women to kind of understand that it's more than just pleasing your partner, that you also matter in the bedroom? Like, I think more often than not, because of some generational roles that we're taught as we're grown up, yeah. it's very much please the father, please the partner, you know, whoever yeah. the partner might be. And women aren't, are kind of left behind in that sense. You know, I always joke around. Um, I, I read masters, uh, what was it? Masters and Johnson. I read their book years ago. And the idea of the masturbation was hysteria. Like they would have to bring them, bring women to the doctors so they can, you know, get off essentially right? because they were crazy. Like this to me, I mean, obviously we've made, like, we've made so much, um, progress in the thought of it but how can women start to understand that first of all it's 100% okay to be a sexual person like there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with it um but how can how can we kind of relay a message to let them know that this is okay and it's okay to articulate what it is that you might want from a partner or what it is you might want from yourself and I know we touched more on the trauma side of it and I'm sure it's going to be kind of similar but I guess I kind of want to know is like how to get women to be more open-minded about it yeah. Oh my gosh. And this, if we can do this, Nikki, we're going to change the world. Um, so <laughs> I'm here for it. Let's go. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, pleasure is a birthright, right? Pleasure is a birthright. Yeah. Most male bodied people somehow get the message that they're supposed to feel good, right? They're brought up in a society. It's like, yes, your pleasure is prioritized. The woman is here to serve you. And I know we're being very gendered now. This is not for everybody. This is for our non-binary and trans people, it gets really um, complex. So I'm, I'm calling that out. I'm calling right. myself out. In general, men, yep, I deserve pleasure. Women, nope, I deserve to give you pleasure. Pleasure is our birthright. How do I know it? Our bodies, the clitoris, it's the only organ designed solely for pleasure. Has no other function. It's got 10,000 nerve endings, more than two times more, uh, more than two times as much as the head of the penis. It's just there for our pleasure. There's no mistakes. Biology right. did not make a mistake. I 100% agree. <laughs> right. Wasn't right. it, wasn't it just, uh, I won't say recently, recently, but wasn't it in like the seventies or eighties that it was just discovered? Like it wasn't even something that was noted in any. Exactly. Of yeah. It, it was just overlooked. So in the seventies, eighties and nineties, they had more research on it. Um, I think in the 90s, early 2000s, they looked at a bovine, a cow clitoris, and they were like, oh, yeah, it has 8,000 nerve endings. Just in the last two years, they're bothering to really study women's clitorises, and it has over 10,000 nerve endings. And again, the head of a penis has 4,000. That's insane. That's how, that's how sensitive it is. Yes. <laughs> women are amazing. Uh, yes. Yeah. You know, it's just so on that front, because I can, we can, we can talk about this all day but I want to be mindful of time. So self-pleasure, this one to me, I think is a huge subject that doesn't necessarily get talked about. And again, I'm, I'm speaking in, in, in respect to times where we weren't so open about it. I do feel like we yeah. are getting to a point where this is all coming to a head, but there are still some women out there who don't believe, you know, I always joke around Catholic guilt, right? We're taught, yeah. uh, you know, auto manipulation is not as sinful, right? You're not supposed to do this, but how important is it for your actual health to take the time to self-pleasure? Yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. So self-pleasure is a form of self-care. 
So there's not my sexual health over here on one side and my overall health here on the other side. It is, we are one body, one unit, one entity. We have to prioritize our sexual health. Like we prioritize our physical health or our mental health. Mm -hmm. When we self-pleasure, and especially if we reach orgasm, we are going to get a cocktail bath of hormones, including um, endorphins, serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin, right? These are really good for our brain. They're really good for our body. They're going to improve our mood, help our sleep, um, improve immune function, um, reduce depression, reduce anxiety, and those contractions of the pelvic floor that we feel when we have an orgasm, mm -hmm. those help keep our pelvic floor healthy, nice and toned and healthy. So we don't struggle with incontinence. Right. Oh, thank yeah. you. Cause I, I, I do believe that's so important for women to under, or I, for the species to understand yeah. that we should all be participating in it. We touched a little bit on, you know, desires and, and whatnot. So from the perspective of wanting to articulate things that you want to try, um, I would hope that a lot of people are in relationships with a partner in which they can articulate, but obviously there's there's people who, who don't. And there are people who can articulate, but might be worried that it's too much of, you know, to this side of things, right? It might be too extreme. Do you kind of offer, uh, do you have any tips on how to start those conversations or kind of leaning in it or or maybe helping your partner understand or get comfortable to want to do those things with you? I do. I do. And it starts with two words. Well, three, but one's a conjunction. Um, <laughs> I'm curious. Ooh. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Nikki, I'm curious what you think about uh, BDSM. Nikki, I'm curious what you think about a long, slow bath. Nikki, mm -hmm. I'm curious what you think about sex on the beach, right? So right. when we approach a conversation with I'm curious, it keeps our partner out of defensiveness. I'm not sitting across from you saying, Nikki, that was the worst sex of my life. I'm never doing that again. That sucked. You're awful. Right. Right. If I said that to you, you're going to either shut down and go into shame or you're going to get defensive and be like, that was good for me. I'm fine. I don't know what your problem is. Mm -hmm. So creating this conversation around curiosity or, hey, I watched this movie and this couple was doing X, Y, Z. I found it really hot. What do you think of that? Right. Just have just having an open dialogue. I, yeah. Communication is key regardless of it being sex, relationship, whatever, just being able to communicate. Sometimes I feel like lack of education too, of not really understanding that sex is more than just for procreation or recreating, yeah. whatever you want to put it. And a lot of that time, times that's really where, you know, it goes from. And it also goes from, you know, conservative to, to not so conservative in the bedroom, but just simple things of just having a massage can be something as serious, uh, as, as simple as starting a, an open dialogue with your partner on, on where to get started or things that you might like. Um, yeah. And that's what the sensate focus protocol does from masters and Johnson, which um, it's, it's in my book too, but that's um, essentially the foundation for the protocol that I use in that connection chapter. Oh, so nice. we're starting with a massage, close on, close off, but then you get to say, Oh my gosh, I love it. When you touch me there. Mm -hmm. That really turned me on when you, when you touched my ears or, Ooh, when you touched the back of my legs, that made me a little bit tense. Let's not do that again. You know, but it's all constructive. Nothing's accusatory or defensive. Right. Right. It's keeping the, each other, the open communication in a comfortable level for everybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's going to be things. Almost no couple is perfectly aligned on what turns them on. Every Your sexual template is like a fingerprint. No matter how good your relationship, your husband, Nikki's um, still going to have different preferences than you mm. do. And if you can hear him, right, if you can hear him from a place of empathy and compassion and curiosity, you don't have to say yes to everything, but you have to hear him out. Right. It can be a yes, no, or a maybe. Right. Right. And you get to decide. Right. And we're very, we're very open in our discussions with, with things like it's one of the things I appreciate. And I talk about him all the time on this, but we can have open conversations about pretty much anything, but mostly when it comes to our, our relationship in the bedroom, we're very open and honest. And we do say, I'm curious, or have you seen this? Or have you thought about this? Like we've, we were, we're able to, able to have that conversation, which is why when I come across people who can't have that conversation, it's almost foreign to me because I can't imagine being with a partner and not being able to have those conversations. Um, yeah. it's tough. It happens a lot. It happens a lot just because people have fantasies that have perhaps been shamed before, or they've never, well, first of all, maybe they don't even know what they like. Right. right. So you can't ask someone to say something that they don't even know. So that's why the self, they have to start with self-pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where, where is their voice getting shut down in other aspects of their life? I would be really curious about that. And what's scary about bringing this to your partner? Right. Right. Cause if the part, you know, like you said, depending on how the partner is in their own sexual education or sexual you know, yeah. lifestyle, they might be very conservative and you're just worried about having that conversation because it's not something um, they want to do. Um, I'm going to just peek at my notes because I have so many. Yeah. Notes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, low libido is one of my favorite topics to talk about for the simple fact that as we get older, this, it just happens. Right. And I, and I remember when I first got married, I was on different birth controls and I know hormones have to do a lot with it. And I did have one birth control that literally just took my low libido or took my away. Um, and after talking with my doctor, we figured out it was a birth control and we're able to switch. What would you advise? And I know you know, hormones is one thing in, in health and all that side of it can, can obviously affect it. But if somebody is in the place where they feel like they don't want it or their body doesn't want it, but they know that they want it, you know, I don't really necessarily know how to explain it, but I often find myself in times where I like, I, in my mind, I'm like, I definitely want to do it. But then part of me is like, I just don't feel like doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And, and thank you for saying that out loud and normalizing it. This is going to be true for every person on the planet. Um, True more often for female bodied people for a lot of reasons, for hormonal reasons, um, for contextual reasons, because we do the bulk of labor in the household. So most of us work a job and, you know, the division of labor is still not equal. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, but it's oh, I agree. still not equal. Childcare, all of that. So we've got a lot on our plates. Um, oh my gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Oh, low libido. I'm sorry. Okay. No, you're fine. So, so sex, we get sex. The more sex we have, the more sex we want. This is a hundred percent true. So if you're in a place where you're like, I don't want sex. Um, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard a woman say, I don't care if I ever have sex again, I'm done. And I know they do care speaking to what you said, that part of themselves, there's a part of themselves that does care. Otherwise they wouldn't be in my office. Mm-hmm. Um, so I say that I'm the more sex you have, the more sex you want. It's a muscle, use it or lose it. 
So then I'd start them on a self-pleasure protocol Mm -hmm. and just build from there. Um, Usually they've not been having good sex. Why would we want something bad? It's like, I'm going to ask you, Hey, do you want this least favorite food? You're going to be like, nah, not that hungry. Right. Right. I, uh, I was recently um, learning about perimenopause and how that can affect. That's where I think my aspect of it comes from because that I've, we're, we're good (laughs) in our, in our relationship, but I have noticed as I'm getting older, like the thought is still there and we're, you know, we're adventurous and we do this, but sometimes I'm just like, don't feel like I have, I often have this joke that I never turn down my husband. Like I never say no, I'm always, and that's not to, not because not to please him or make him happy. It's just because I want it too. So I just never say no, if the opportunity arises, I will hop on it. Um, so understanding, you know, obviously the, the self-pleasure thing I think is a great thing. Um, but low libido is something that's, I, I don't believe is discussed as often. We immediately think there's something wrong with us. So thank you for, for answering yeah. that for me because no. it's not something that is talked about. And we're, it's also kind of a thing too, where it's like, oh, you're a woman, you're, you don't want sex as much. And this is going to lead me into my next question. My next question, let's talk about the sexual wants and the, the, I guess, horniness of women compared to men, I feel it's almost equal, if not more. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. It's, um, it's equal. Uh, now men have more testosterone, so they're going to feel that spontaneous desire a little bit more readily than a female body person does. So we've got spontaneous desire versus responsive desire. Mm -hmm. Women are going to respond to to situations or stimulus men, because of the higher testosterone, they can be walking down the street and get a heart on, right? Like it's just a little (laughs) bit more accessible to them. Wednesday Martin's work. She wrote a book called untrue. It is a famous, uh, famous, a fabulous um, kind of introspection of women's desire. All the myths, it busts myths about monogamy and desire and what women want and what they don't want. I think so much of it is salt, uh, social and cultural. We just haven't had permission to express what we want because we get slut shamed if we do. Oh my God, I know, slut shamed. It's one of my favorite, but not favorite words, if that makes sense, because it's such a good word, but it's it's a terrible act. Like there's no reason why women should not, cannot be as open and available, I guess, as the male species is right because yes. they're able to just walk around freely discuss talk do whatever when it comes to it but us it's just down to even how we dress and again it goes like you said it goes back to social and cultural um aspects or how we were brought up or you know cover yourself yeah. you're distracting you know men and that's a whole topic for a whole other episode i'm sure right we um but as yeah. if men have literally no self-control in the world and it's our job to keep ourselves safe Come oh yeah on. Come yeah. on, come on. <laughs> like it's, it's probably one of the most ridiculous things I've ever had the experience to to deal with and, and read yeah. about, honestly. It's just, yeah. um, you touched on the male body, you know, they can just walk down the street and, you know, get a heart on and women are more of the stimulus thing. Can we, can we dive into that a little bit more about what that means? Um, my understanding of it is women, there are, 
I don't want to say we're complicated because it's it's not complication, but there are things that come into play when we want to try to get into food or we are trying to get moved. It, it could be simple as you did the dishes, right? Like people joke right. around, like that's hot. He did the dishes today. Can you kind of touch base on on what it is that women do need to get to that point that men can get to so quickly? Yeah, yeah. And I want to make sure, and I know you know this, but to say out loud, not all male-bodied people right? We're speaking in generalities here. There's plenty of men um, in my practice who have low desire, how hard that is for them. Their their female bodied partner wants more sex than they do. Please know I see that all the time as well. Right. It's an equal. Uh, It it is. It it can be equal. It's just men are less apt to talk about it. Um, But women generally lean a little bit harder into an emotional connection and the context, right? So a couple sits down with me. um, They say, he wants sex. I need emotional connection. I'm not going to give him sex until he gives me an emotional connection. And and he says, I'm not going to be there for her emotionally until she gives me sex. They go around and around and around and around. Um, and it could go the other way. The female person might want the, the physical connection and the male person might be like, oh my God, she's never present for me. Right. Right. Or same sex, whatever is going on here, but it's the, the dynamic is the point. So what context Do you need to feel turned on? Do you need a clean bedroom? Do you need no dishes in the sink? Do you need to feel like your partner appreciates you and supports you? Do you need your partner to say you look gorgeous or your butt looks hot? Like what is the context that you need to get aroused? Because it's not going to fall out of the air. For most long-term couples, like that new relationship energy, that spontaneous desire, it's not going to fall out of the air. We have to cultivate it. And it's just figuring out how to make that happen. Usually travel, going on a vacation, you know, that's a great way to do it, but we can't be on vacation. Right. Escaping the daily routine is usually because you don't have any responsibility at that point. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. This is, ah, I love every part of this. This is, you are, you are amazing. I want to talk about one of the things that you do on Instagram that I absolutely love are your quickies. Can you kind of dive into like share with my listeners what it is that you do? Because I think it's a, it's a quickie. So I won't even take away. (laughs) Yes. I am a huge fan of quickies. We're going to make a case for quickies. Um, So where that came from is I sit down with so many people who want the perfect scenario to have sex, right? I need to have a shower. My stomach needs to not be bloated. Um, the stars need to be aligned. The bedroom needs to be clean. And, and sometimes we can make that happen. And sometimes we just need to step in when our partner is willing. And we feel even a little touch of like, yes, I can do this. I want to be deeply connected to myself and others. So I love quickies and nothing has to be perfect. So these are questions that listeners write into me and I give a one to two minute response to, and it could be explaining low desire. It could be explaining the orgasm gap or arousal non-concordance or, oh my gosh, I have this fantasy of being raped. What does that mean? So all questions are on the table or, oh my gosh, I'm feeling resentful when my partner touches me. So it could couples focused, sexuality focused, trauma focused. I take them all. 
Oh, I love it. It's literally one of my favorite things that you do. Thank you. <laughs> and you guys, those live on Instagram. Um, uh, and you can send me a question through Instagram too. Right. And I'll have all of your information be in the show notes and I'll have you um, at the end of our episode also let everybody know where they could find you. I do have, I'm going to be mindful of time. So I do have one more question and then we can kind of just like transition. You mentioned something that I noted and I haven't gotten to it yet. Orgasm gaps. Mm -hmm. The when I was younger and I learned that I can have multiple, it was very surprising. It was often surprising because there were a lot of girlfriends of mine who couldn't or didn't understand couldn't. Men, from my understanding or my experience, only can have one. Can we talk about this? And what, yes. if any, science behind it can you uh, provide? <laughs> Yes, there is definitely science behind the orgasm gap. Some people are going to call it the pleasure gap. So what this means is, let's say a male-bodied person and a female-bodied person have sex 10 times. So out of those 10 times, the male is going to have an orgasm 10 times. The woman, from just penetration alone, is going to maybe, if she's lucky, have an orgasm five, six, maybe seven times. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the orgasm gap lets us know that most female people need clitoral stimulation to reach orgasm. What the movies tell us, what most of us are brought up with is like penis and vagina, it's supposed to feel great and you're supposed to have an orgasm. It just doesn't work that way. So to be more specific, over 75% of female bodied people need clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. Right. I, I know so many women that can't have an orgasm through penetration. And that would be always the thing is like, have you tried, have you tried clitoral? I'll use the technical term. Have you tried yeah. clitoral stimulation? And like, oh, we don't do that. I'm like, why? It's <laughs> almost the only way. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and we know that the clitoris has legs. So we only see the little nub on top, but it's got legs. So if you can come from penis and vagina or from penetration, you're probably hitting the legs of the clitoris, which is fine too, but there's no better way. There's no worse way. If you're coming, you're coming bravo, right? Good, We're good not judging you. it. Yeah, good on you. Uh, God, the clitoris. I could talk about like the, the mystery of it. Mm -hmm. Is it, how long is it? Cause I've, I've read different things too. I don't know if you, if you know this off the top of your head, but like it can be longer or is longer than the average penis size? Is that something I read that's correct? Um, so the whole thing, the whole wishbone thing, um, I'm just looking over here because I have one somewhere, but it's, I think it's about five centimeters, right. four to five centimeters. So, um, and again, most of it's internal. Most of it's, say, internal, it's more but, of an internal. Yeah. But it's a powerhouse. Yeah. yeah. It's my favorite thing. The clitoris. Find it, <laughs> learn what you like. Yes. That's my, my biggest tip of the day. Yeah. Oh. You, oh, show your partner where it is. Right? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely show them where it is and and be open. That's the other thing too. When I have conversations with my girlfriends who aren't necessarily as open and thing, I always try to say, you know, obviously do what you're comfortable with, but if you don't know what you want, how is your partner going to know what you want? Like you have to understand what your body can do um, and take the time to, like, there's nothing wrong with exploring it. So if for all of you are listening, take the time to understand you know, what it is that you do want. So you can get to a point to articulate it. So you are absolutely amazing. I am like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like getting speechless. So I am going to be mindful of time because we're coming up to a little bit of an hour. So I have one final question for you. What is the one thing you will not apologize for? Taking up space. That. 
Yeah. Yeah. Taking up space with my body, taking up space with my voice, taking up space with my pleasure. I love it. You, this is, this is amazing. Um, Ken, uh, so if people wanted to reach out to you or find your book or, or any information about you, um, where can, where can they do that? I feel like most people are going to go to social media these days. So on Instagram, Facebook, I'm at Dr. Holly Richmond, D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D, or my website, drhollyrichmond.com. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for joining me today. This this was one of my favorite conversations. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for doing this. Um, oh, and- thank you, Nikki. Oh, thank you. And just like that, we'll talk next week, everybody. Bye.